you will, come with me to the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11. We'll read verses 1 through 3. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is the word of our great God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, by your Spirit, that we will rightly see and hear and understand this, your word. We need you desperately, Lord. Please be merciful to us, for it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Everybody seems to be looking for some kind of hero. Most of us have heroes in our lives. Your heroes are often those who have done what maybe you hope to do at some point. My own heroes have been ministers of the gospel for the most part. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Thomas Brooks, Thomas Watson, Thomas Boston, three Thomases there together. John Owen, Richard Sibbs, John Bunyan, John Gill, Jonathan Edwards, several Jonathans in there. Spurgeon, Boyce, B.H. Carroll, B. Martin Lloyd-Jones, James Packer, R.C. Sproul, host of others. Now it's not just that all of my heroes are dead, although that is safe by the way. Dead heroes rarely mess up and rarely embarrass you. My father, gone to be with the Lord, was always, I would say, a common everyday hero to me. Much of who I am and how I think about life is directly impacted by what I saw in my father. And even some of my heroes at this time are living and they are friends. But all of them have something in common. Every last one of them is human. Every last one of them had and has blind spots. Every one of them has failed in some way at some point, And that's okay. It's the mark, honestly, of childish immaturity on our part, if your heroes have to be perfect. Now let me back up a little bit. There is one perfect hero, the hero of the story throughout the gospel, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But every other hero you're going to have, my friend, is going to be flawed. Now we have come to this 11th chapter of Hebrews, and we read about what you could call heroes here, I believe. Real folks like you and I. 
I love how R.T. Kendall describes it. Hebrews 11 is not a museum, but a living experience and fellowship. Al Mohler points out Hebrews 11 comes after repeated warnings to the original audience. The author has been reminding his congregation not to take the gospel lightly and not to have a superficial understanding of sin. In fact, Hebrews 10, 32-39 connects the audience to these admonitions and exhortations then to chapter 11. Remember the earlier days when after you'd been enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, chapter 10, verse 32. These are words we need to remember as we enter this chapter. God embedded in the history of redemption types and shadows that pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Thus, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tells the one story. The story of the grace of God found only in Christ Jesus. The 11th chapter, on the heels of these excitations to endurance, to patience, to holding on, living faithfully, the author stops for a moment and says, so what do we mean when we talk about faith? Now, that question, by the way, is not there in the text. But you see what he's doing. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Unfortunately, our tendency is to think of faith as some kind of sentimentality, of some sort of spiritual wishful thinking, or in some groups as somehow, I would say, akin to magic formulas and magic words. That is, if you say the right words and believe the right things and believe them hard enough, that then you alter reality and God's obligated to act. And I will tell you now, that is not biblical faith. Enduring faith is a certain faith. It is a convictional faith. It is a faith that actually has content. So whether you think of faith, and it's proper to think of it in both these ways, as either the content, the objective thing and person in whom we believe, or whether you think of faith as the action, the verbal, the predicate, if you will, of how we behave and how we think, you're not going wrong, but you ought to let the Scripture tell you what that actually looks like. So let's consider the first verse, faith defined. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. True Bible faith is confident obedience to God's Word in spite of circumstances. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. 
Faith here, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Faith includes some things. It includes a confession. There's the objective consequence, if you will. Galatians 1.23, Paul, in telling his testimony, says of those who heard about him, they only were hearing it said, and this is what they said about this Paul, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Remember, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the apostle Paul, is the fellow who's trying to destroy it because he thought it a false teaching. He thought it heretical. He thought it blasphemous. And so he had Christians arrested. He had them put in prison. He even helped in some being executed. But a change has taken place. And that change was that he preached the faith he once tried to destroy. This faith also has an object. Jesus is the object. John John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, these things are written so that you may believe, the word for faith there, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This faith appropriates salvation, Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the Word of God. But here in verse 1 of chapter 11, faith has Two things, two descriptors, if you will. Assurance and conviction. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Assurance, the ability to actually know that you're the Lord's. To know that He actually loves you. To know that what He's promised will come true. Faith brings with it genuine biblical faith is assurance. It's also conviction. It is a certainty. Both the whom and the what of our salvation are unseen, but we're still living with the conviction, the certainty that this is true. Even Jesus will say, blessed are you for what you have seen. Right? But he'll go on to, see, to say it this way. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. For you and I have not seen. We've not seen Jesus. Jesus has not physically been present with us. And yet, having not seen, we believe. I like the way Tom Schreiner puts it. Faith is assured that what is hoped for will be one day a reality. It's convinced that the unseen promises of God will be fulfilled. Faith and hope get placed together here. Faith is conviction. Hope is more, if you will, I think, emotion. Romans 8, 24, for in this hope we were saved. That Now hope that is seen is not hope, who hopes for what he sees. What well, we read earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Or in that same letter, 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, what is it that I'm calling for here? What is it the author is saying to us? Faith is more than sentimentality. Faith is more than merely a vague spiritual fuzzy emotion. Faith is grounded in an assurance and a conviction that the God who promised life in Jesus Christ, the God who said, if you believe in Jesus, you will live, has made a valid, proper promise to us. And that if we believe the promise, we trust in Christ, we are assured that he has received us and will receive us. And we are convicted that we live in light of that reality. And my friend, if you don't have that, I'm not exactly sure how you do endurance. Because endurance is, is kind of miserable if all it amounts to is buckling down, trying hard, gritting your teeth, mm. Now, you may be able to do that for a little bit. Some of you look like you do it all the time. You've got that look on your face. Your jaw's always clenched. You're always looking at this. Endurance is trusting God until the fulfillment of the promise. Now, I've wondered about it here. Maybe this will help. I think you could, in truth, I think this is the best Short definition of faith, simply this, believing God. Not believing in God, that's the presupposition. Believing God. That God has spoken, to quote from that glorious Christian theologian, philosopher, apologist, Francis Schaeffer. We believe in the God who is there. He's real. And we believe he's there and he's not silent. He has spoken. We hear from him. And faith is not just the affirmation that he is. Faith is the affirmation that what he says is true and we will stake our very lives and souls upon it. Faith is assurance and conviction. Now, if that's faith defined, you could call the second verse faith displayed. For by it, that is this faith, the people of old received their commendation. Now, what follows here is a list of those who were examples of faith, but were not in any way what I would call superhuman saints. And I think the problem is we read this, and we say, oh, of course, yes, Abel, yep, right, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, you go down the list. They had an advantage we don't have. That is not true. In fact, I will say to you this. Your advantages are greater than what any of the Old Testament saints had. They had to look forward to something they could only see dimly. You and I look back on reality 
accomplished in the person of Jesus Christ. The faith they possessed, we also possess. The God they served is the God we serve. They live by faith, we live by faith. And our faith saves us then to serve. Here's the grand truth of this verse and the chapter. We serve the same God and experience the same kind of life which these saints experienced. We are reminded here, my friends, there's only two options. He says these were commended. And the end of your life, there's only two possibilities. You're either commended or you're condemned. There's no middle ground between those. You are either commended by the Lord that you believed in Him and He receives you as His child or you're condemned to the Lord that you didn't believe. If you think there is a third option, I am here to tell you as the representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins and the only hope you have is repentance now and faith. These were commended. And as you look at this chapter, and some of you will take time, I hope, to read the whole chapter, but part of the dramatic literary impact comes from the way it starts in what you'd almost call this leisurely fashion. Now, faith is the uh, assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and he just, going along, it's a very stately it almost sounds to me like he found a spot in the sermon and he paused. He's been going pretty hard and he's going at quite a pace. I think this originally was a sermon. And he, he stops at a moment and says, he lowers his voice a little and he starts talking about faith. And people are leaning in. But the further he goes, the rapid recitation of hardships suffered by the unnamed before us in the faith just come in rapid succession it just builds to this crescendo and folks can i let you on a little thing isn't it encouraging that at the end he's not giving us names he's just telling what they went through <laughs> you wonder about your life do you know it's okay that nobody knows who you are except him he knows this matter of living in faith shows up in the painful experiences of life for the believer. And folks, there are hard things. Just this week, the, the son of one of our members is on his deathbed in a hospital. Been three days of family sitting there, waiting for the inevitable. That's living in faith, my friend. Thankfully, Joel knows Jesus. I had one of the best conversations with him a few weeks ago, his testimony of faith in Christ. And he's going home, but the body doesn't give up easily. Living in faith is living faithfully in the midst of that difficult circumstance. Just last night, I had a message from a former member who's been gone several years, and she had just found out that the pastor, the lead pastor of their church, has had an affair. And that's to be announced to the congregation this morning. Can we endure faithfully? 
when others fail. You know, when we think of the challenges that a believer may face to their faith, death, particularly death of a loved one, and especially the death of one's child, can stagger us. In late 2020, Nick Challies, the son of Tim Challies, the Christian author and blogger, was at college. He was participating in a sporting event with Guys from his hall, there with his fiancée, whom he was going to marry in March of 21, and his sister. And right in the middle of all the fun, Nick collapsed, never regained consciousness, and died. Tim has written an excellent little book called Seasons of Sorrow. I highly recommend it, but you better have a box of Kleenex nearby. He's quite honest in the book. Much of it's raw. It's difficult to read. But in those many short chapters, there's one that bears the title, My Manifesto. And to me, it reflects the commended faith of this second verse. Listen to this. When we think of the greatest challenges a believer may face, death, particularly death of a loved one, is so hard. Now listen to how he responds. By faith I will accept Nick's death as God's will. And by faith accept that God's will is always good. By faith, I'll be at peace with providence. And by faith, at peace with its every decree. By faith, I will praise God in the taking, as I did in the giving. And by faith, receive from his hand this sorrow, as I have so many joys. I will grieve but not grumble, mourn, but not murmur, weep, but not whine. Though I will be scarred by Nick's death, I will not be defined by it. Though it will always be part of my story, it will never become my identity. I will be forever thankful that God gave me a son And never resentful that he called him home. My joy in having loved Nick will be greater than my grief in having lost him. I will not waver in my faith, nor abandon my hope, nor revoke my love. I will not charge God with wrong. I'll receive this trial as a responsibility to steward, not a punishment to endure. I will look for God's smile in it rather than his frown, listen for his words of blessing rather than his voice of rebuke. 
The sorrow will not make me angry or bitter nor cause me to act out in rebellion or indignation. Rather, it will make me kinder and gentler, more patient and loving, more compassionate and sympathetic. It will loose my heart from the things of earth and fix it on the things of heaven. The loss of my son will make me more like God's son, my sorrow like the man of sorrows. I will continue to love God and trust him. Continue to pursue God and enjoy him. Continue to worship God and boast of his many mercies. I will look with longing to the day of Christ's return and, my expect and with expectation to the day of resurrection. I will remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. I will forget what lies behind and strain forward to what lies ahead, always pressing on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus I will lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race that's set before me, looking always to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of my faith. I will remain faithful until I fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith. I will die as I have lived, a follower of Jesus Christ, and by his grace, I'll go to be with Jesus and go to be with Nick. This is my manifesto. My brothers and sisters, do you understand that is a faith the Lord commends? Faithfulness in the face of difficulty. Faithfulness for these believers in the book of Hebrews who had suffered the loss of their goods, the loss of property, the loss of friends, the loss of loved ones. You see, that's a faith that's on display. And finally, there's a faith here that discerns. He defines it for us. He displays it. He says we see it in these that are coming in the next few verses. And some wonder at that third verse, why does he throw this in? By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are made. Well, if you'll notice, the first seven examples he cites are from the book of Genesis. So since he's already in Genesis anyway, he's going to say something about creation. And he puts this note not only about creation, but our response. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, we understand this. Now, folks, I've read probably far more than maybe is healthy on the subject of evolution and creation and intelligent design versus uh, happenstance. If you've not noticed, we live in a world and at a time that the prevailing philosophical understanding of this world is materialism. And by that I don't mean just the acquiring of things, although that is part of materialism. It is the built-in concept and belief that all there is is the material world. It is the faith of, uh, of, of Carl Sagan in Cosmos 
The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. Well, he's just laid out his presupposition at the beginning. He is a full-blown materialist. The issue of whether you affirm your belief in creation and a creator is certainly today one of controversy. To be a Christian and actually affirm you believe God created the heavens and the earth according to the scripture has come under extraordinary attack. And many act as though that it's the only view of the beginning that is open to such attack. Apparently they've never read Michael Denton's Evolution, A Theory in Crisis, where he says Darwin's general theory that all of life on earth had originated and evolved by a gradual successive accumulation of fortuitous mutations is still, as it was in Darwin's time, a highly speculative hypothesis entirely without directed, direct factual support and very far from the self-evident axiom some of his more aggressive advocates would have us believe. Christian, hear what I say. Whether it's valid to have arguments, and I suppose it is, over whether you're a young earth creationist or an old earth creationist, or whether you describe yourself as some kind of theistic evolutionist, those are debates that we can have. But my friend, if it ever lands you in the place where you deny that God created everything, you're in deep, deep trouble. And if it ever lands you in a place where you do not see humans as created initially in the image of God and without flaw and fault, then you're in trouble as well because your entire doctrine of salvation starts falling apart when you pull out that support. Creation is true even if the majority says it isn't. Creation is true no matter what anybody else says, and in fact, if the majority of men today came out affirming creation, it would not make the doctrine of creation any stronger. For God has said this is what he did. We affirm all things made by God. Christians hear me, and especially Christian young people, facing the almost exclusive materialist views of the universe and in particular in our universities, our education system. Do not for a moment be ashamed of what you believe. These cocksure pseudo-intellectuals who so confidently arraign your beliefs as fantasy and foolishness cannot themselves adequately answer the questions they produce. To quote our dear departed brother R.C. Sproul, the biggest one they can't do. Why is there something rather than nothing? All right, so there's always been something. Hmm. And where did you come to that conclusion? What experiment did you devise to demonstrate the eternality of matter? And does eternal even have any meaning here? Hmm. Their arrogance is the display of what God calls foolishness. Their own lives are often horrid train wrecks. There is no lack of intellectual respectability in affirming your faith in God the Creator. But it's not merely an intellectual act to affirm this. 
It is primarily an act of faith. I'm not saying there's not a reason to believe. I'm not denying our intellects, my friends. But please understand this. Unless God revealed what he did, we would never come to the right conclusion about this. We may look at the world around us and say, well, it seems reasonable there is a God and that he's very powerful. But you understand neither of those things will save you from your sins. It is only as the revelation of God in Jesus Christ comes that salvation comes to us. That said, we affirm all things are made by God, every star, all ten octillion of them. And if you're not familiar with octillion, you poor pitiful redneck. That's where I am. I'm part of the poor pitiful redneck club. That's ten followed by 27 zeros. I love this description from Kent Hughes, an illustration. Those who deny the Creator are like the piano mice who lived all their lives in a large piano. The music of the instrument came to them in their piano world, filled all the dark spaces with sound and harmony. At first the mice were impressed by it. They drew comfort and wonder from the thought that there was someone who made the music, though invisible to them, someone above yet close to them. They loved to think of the great player whom they could not see. Then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano where it turned very thoughtful. He had found out how the music came, how it was made. Wires were the secret. Tightly stretched wires of graduated lengths that trembled and vibrated. They must now revise their beliefs there in piano mouse land. None but the most conservative could any longer believe in the unseen player. Later, another explorer carried the explanation further. Hammers were now the secret. Great numbers of hammers dancing and leaping on the wire. This was a more complicated theory, but it all went to show they lived in a purely mechanical and mathematical world. The unseen player came to be thought of as a myth, though the pianist continued to play. Listen to Tom Schreiner. The creation of the world is a miracle. It doesn't derive from pre-existing material. Creation out of nothing can't be cannot be demonstrated empirically, though neither can the contrary. It is embraced by faith. Now, why camp in those areas? Preacher, you've had me all over the map. We talked about faith and what it is. We talked about living and being committed for the faith. And dragged in that bit, that manifesto, and it made me sad to think. And I hope it made you thoughtful. How are you going to live? And now we're talking creation. Well, I'm just trying to follow the text here. And all of it is to this, my friend. Faith is not some mystical, sentimental emotion. It is not wishful thinking. Faith isn't 
a sudden infusion of feeling. Living faith is not waiting for a feeling or some divine permission or sigh. It is simply believing God and living in light of what He says is true. One ancient brother put it this way, true faith created to me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything that God reveals in his word is true, but also a deep-rooted assurance that not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been made forever right with God, have been granted salvation by grace. These are the gifts of sheer grace earned for us by Christ. Or for those of you who love a good catechism, Heidelberg, question 21. What is true faith? Answer. True faith is not only a sure knowledge by which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in Scripture, it is also wholehearted trust which the Holy Spirit creates in me by the gospel that God has freely granted. Not only to others, but to me also. Forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These are gifts of sheer grace granted solely by Christ's merit. You follow that? Sure knowledge of what I hold is true, all that God has revealed in Scripture, but also wholehearted trust. This is where you rest. Christian Faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. Faith is commended by the Lord. In fact, later he's going to say, without faith it's impossible to please God. And faith tells you the world you live in is not an accident. God made it. And there are sound reasons for why the world is the way it is. And why you are the way you are. And that the solution for all those things is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, teach us as we go through this 11th chapter of Hebrews about faith, what true faith actually looks like. Encourage us, Father, for, Lord, it's so easy for us to be discouraged. And, Lord, too often we are so short-sighted in our thinking. We think that because we suffer, because there are things that are hard, because there are things that are difficult, that nobody's ever struggled the way we struggle. Lord, open our eyes that the struggle is nothing new. There have always been competing worldviews. There have always been those who laughed and mocked what is believed by the faithful. There have always been the challenges of suffering and misery and death. Oh Lord, make us faithful, enduringly faithful. And may our faith be the assurance and the conviction of things hopeful and things yet unseen. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.